0: Father, thank you one more time that we can come before you and ask for blessing from your word. Thank you for this story that is a story that is ancient about a temple being rebuilt, but God, it's so much more than that. It's a story that tells us the story of your people and how they humbly submitted to pagan authorities, but ultimately were submitting to you, God. God the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament, and Jesus Christ is explained by all of the scriptures and the allegiance that these exiles, these people showed to you in humble submission is what opened the door for the rebuilding of your temple, and not even just a building, but the rebuilding of your glory in your city, in your southern kingdom, Judah the city of Jerusalem. So God, I pray that now we would learn from your people of old because we are your people in the new covenant now and let us shine with the same witness that they had then now for your glory as you are building your church and we are your living stones. Lord, we want to be part of your building project now which is the church of the living God, the structure that we are living in under your headship for your glory lord let us be a beacon on a hill even this morning in anchorage alaska in jesus name we pray amen well it's uh it's april amen and it's uh it's melting off and uh the sun is shining brighter than it has and we actually feel heat from the sun and we're watching things melt I've been chipping some ice these days, and, uh, you know, it's going to melt, but you chip it just for victory's sake, right? Just to watch it chip away, and, you know, little rivers form, and the kids are in the puddles again, and this is a, a time of renewal, and it also sort of is a symbol of what we're about to celebrate this coming Friday and then Sunday, where we will, we will celebrate Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, thinking about the victory that's ours in jesus christ it's all for his glory but we experience in our hearts worship and gratitude and exaltation because we know that we are clean before our holy god and we've been given the second chance of all second chances in this life to live for christ and to run the race for his glory and I want to focus in this morning on this April day on a people that they, they were running a race for God's glory in this building project. And they were rejoicing in God and it all came through humble submission. It's sort of a key topic of this morning. It's a key topic in this correspondence that Steve Paul's just read. It's a correspondence that's a powerful one because, not just because it sort of got something done in the building project, but because it reflects a transformed heart that is humbly submissive. And that heart is encapsulated in these people. It's April. And I mentioned it was April because not only do we think about resurrection. Sunday, but we also think about something on a lesser level in terms of uh, our submission to government, right? It's tax season, and for many of us, we know that April 15th is tax season, and that's the day it's due, and if my sort of internet research is right, I think for those of us who are procrastinators, we were given a couple more days in the province of God this year for our taxes to be turned in. Instead of it being the 15th, which falls on Sunday this year, and then Monday is Emancipation Day, it's the 17th, and that's when taxes are due, procrastinators can rejoice, right? Anyway, uh, the survey suggests that most of our country uh, gives all that's required by the government in their taxes each year, but a survey also suggests that the amount of people who cheat on their taxes has doubled in the last few years. The good news is, is it's just gone from 4% to 8% in terms of those who would admit, I guess, on surveys that they cheat. As some surveys say that it's more like 40% of our country cheats or works a second job under the table and doesn't report their taxes for that. And so we, we have people who do cheat And do not reflect a civic duty or an attitude that we would want in our world. And there was one survey I read that said that people these days would be more embarrassed being caught throwing trash out the window or smoking a cigarette or even getting a DUI or shoplifting uh, instead of them being caught as people who are cheating on their taxes. Perhaps it's because of our economic environment. People are giving themselves a pass to sort of let it go a little bit more. In, in one survey, the U.S. Treasury says that uh, cheating accounts for $250 billion unreported tax revenue and it's caused the highest auditing um, rate in the last 10 years where 100, or 1.4 million audits were done last year. Well, listen, whether we get our taxes exactly right or not, the heart behind that is the key is the key a heart of humble submission and we as the body of christ should be first place in terms of wanting to submit to governing authorities because we've been commanded to do so and guess what we've also been given the power by the holy spirit to have soft hearts to be able to do so god doesn't want our external performance he wants a transformed attitude that is humble and submissive when David the king who was the the leader of God's people sinned as egregiously as he did he wrote the great psalm of confession in psalm 51 and he confessed this for you God would not delight in sacrifice that's external or I would give it you will not be pleased with burnt offerings The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. That's what we need. We need to have an attitude of a humble, submissive, transformed heart. And that is so contrary to the world we live in. And it makes us stand out so much to a world that's watching that it is a very powerful witness to people. And it's the very witness that you and I must have to a watching world. In one sense, I mean, everything is all about the glory of God, but it's up to us as his soldiers down here to wage a war of humility before a watching world if we expect anything to happen to people around us. We're called to be humble. We're called not just to wage a good warfare, but to do it in a radically different way than the world would expect you to do it. You fight back by faith and not with toughness or external toughness or bullying technique. You fight a faith of humility and deference and building other people up. And we see these people in Ezra 5 and 6 are blessed in a magnificent way. They get the ear of the governor of all that is the province west of the Euphrates to listen to them to actually take their side in the correspondence. And then they're going to correspond with the leader of the free world, Darius, at the time. He was the king of sort of the, the population, the known population in the world, all the way from India, all the way over, sweeping to Ethiopia. And they get the ear of Darius, these 50,000 people, for Darius's heart to melt And for Darius to fund and affirm this massive building project. And it all came through humility. All right, well, just to catch us up, for those of you who perhaps are new to Ezra, let me just continue to to sort of backlog a little bit and run forward to where um, I'm going this morning. First of all, I've been talking about relentless spiritual warfare and Ezra, this, this book of the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah, some people would combine it into one book. This is really a history book. It's a history lesson to teach lessons to believers. In the Old Testament time and in the New Testament time, it's to teach the lesson of persevering through a difficult warfare environment. The people of God, they had been ripped out of their country, put in exile, and put under a Persian government. And under this Persian government, they were returned under Cyrus back to their homeland in Jerusalem. And they were called by God to do this building project, which was to renew and rebuild a temple that had been burned years and years, decades and decades before. And these people that had returned home, they'd been home about 20 years And they were starting the building project and they had laid the foundation. It was sort of the sons and grandsons and grandchildren of those that had been taken away in exile. They're building this project. And then the neighboring community, the Samaritans, they begin to discourage and bully the people to a standstill where the building project just stops. That's the story. This is a history story. And it's a narrative where these enemies bully them and intimidate them and talk behind their back and get them to stop. And they go to a grinding standstill for 16 years. And that's where the story picks up at the end of Ezra 4 going into chapter 5. And in Ezra 4, the author is trying to make the point that you're always going to be at war. That was our first principle that we've been talking about for a couple weeks. You're always going to be at war. Recognize this. Embrace it. Realize that, that war is part of your life. And he makes this point in chapter 4 by sort of um, opening up a table of contents look at the story and gives the big picture of how over multiple time periods and multiple kings, they're always going to be putting pressure on you as you fight through that and try to persevere in this building project where it gets shut down for a while and then there's hope again and it opens up. And that sort of brings us to point two, which we've been talking about. Not only do you recognize you'll always be at war, but point two is that you need to rest in the sovereignty of God. The building project will stop and it will start. And that's what chapter four talks about. Even in uh, verse 21, it talks about how later on under Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes will make the work stop at one point, and then a decree will come again where Artaxerxes will open things up and the project will go on. And that's that's what we'll learn about when we get to Nehemiah. But then at verse 24 of chapter, of chapter 4, you see that at the beginning of the story, when the building project was first shut down under Darius, it was stopped until, look at this, until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So these are windows of, of hope where God keeps the building project going. And so principle number two is that we have to rest in the sovereignty of God. You're going to get shut down and discouraged at times, but guess what? God will continue to pick you up. And the Christian life is a call to be a marathon runner where you stumble at times and then you keep going and you don't give up. You rest in the sovereignty of God. Just as a side note under this point, it's interesting, Zechariah, he's one of the key prophets that comes on the scene in chapter 5, verse 1, and he's pumping the people up with the word of God saying, you've got to keep going. If you were to read Zechariah, which we don't have time to look there, but Zechariah chapter 3 talks about a vision of heaven where Joshua, this key spiritual leader during this time, Joshua is, is seen in heaven standing before God and Satan behind the scene is, scenes is accusing Joshua, saying he's too sinful for these people to follow and to build this building again. And it says in Zechariah chapter 3 that the Lord looks at Satan and rebukes him and says, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. And so as believers, we have to understand we're fighting Sometimes physical opponents and people that want to stop us in progressing in our life But really behind the scenes the lord is fighting a battle For us and so we have to rest in the sovereignty of god that even if you feel like Circumstances or enemies or people are stepping on your spiritual air hose right now God's working and he's going to keep building you up and building his kingdom no matter what These are the themes of this history book. These are the things that Ezra is putting forth. And then there's a third theme and third point that I have begun making in Ezra chapter 5. And that is that no matter who your enemies are, and no matter what the opposition is that you're facing, no matter what the circumstances are that you're trying to persevere through, number three, you have to respond in faith. And guess what? That's exactly what these people do. They respond in faith in faith. Look at verse one. We've talked about this before. You have Haggai and Zechariah that come on the scene and they preach and prophesy. And in verse two, it says the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So the the turning point in the story is this. The people of God had stopped the work. They had stopped the building project for 16 years and the word of God filled their hearts again. And all of a sudden, wild horses couldn't stop these people from rebuilding the temple. They were on fire no matter the cost. And in fact, I brought up last week that there are points at which you have to obey God rather than man. They had to take their eyes off of opponents, off of a governor that was gonna to begin to vet them and begin to examine them and say, why are you doing this? Who, who put you up to this building project? And they had to move through that and obey God no matter what the cost, no matter what the consequences would be, they were going to go for it. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter five. And I sort of posed a question last week. What are you supposed to expect when you obey God rather than man, number one, you, you expect opposition. Even if you're being humble about it, even if you're being submissive, if you're out there with your faith, opposition's going to come in. And we learned last time that this governor, Tatani, at this point in the story, begins to vet them and say, Who gave you permission to do this? And give me names of the leaders. Perhaps we're going to undo this project. Verse 8 says that uh, there was a description that Tatanai was building where he was, looking at, he was looking at this project and it had huge stones. And the stones, as chapter 6 says, are three layers deep, verse 4 of chapter 6. And one layer of timber in this building project. is actually bigger by a little bit than Solomon's first temple. And this is the second temple that's built in the exact same spot. And they're going, what's going on? Are you guys building a house of worship or are you building a battle fortress to create a revolt or a movement against us? And we need to know what's going on. But these people were saying, we're committed, no matter what the opposition, we're going to obey God rather than man. The stones were so big that they were called rolling stones. And the reason for that is the only way you could move these stones is by rolling them. And those are three layers deep. So this was a, a large, rustic version of Solomon's temple that was redone. Okay, it's uh, 90 cubits by, or 60 cubits by 60 cubits. It's a, a sort of... A, a, you can get a, you know, a, an idea of how big that would be, you know, 90 by 90, but, but just formidable, formidable looking in this ancient world as far as structures go. Now, they were under some blessing here. They heard the word of God, and they were also, as verse 5 says of chapter 5, they were under the watch care of God. The eye of God was on them. And you know what this looked like? Let me just tell you this. These people... We're not only word-filled and excited to build this project because the Bible was was impelling them or compelling them to do that, but they were acting in faith and they were acknowledging that God was in the watch care of this project. That's what made them fearless. That's what makes us fearless in the Christian life in our job, in our marriages, in our relationships, We have to turn back to one thing, and that is that we know God is watching over our lives. He's watching over our church. He's watching over our emotional state. God's eye is on us. Not a sparrow falls to the ground except under God's watch care. Remember the words of Jesus, right? He's watching over us. Jesus is with us and he is omniscient and sees into our lives and into our hearts. And that's the faith response that these people had. They knew that God was watching over them. Tatanai, this governor that was mentioned, he was some horsepower in this area i mean he was the ruler west of the euphrates that's why they called the river the great river it it sort of divided things in terms of this massive province of samaria and judea this large landmass that tatani was over as sort of the proxy representative for darius who was the kingdom ruler all over the known world and so they're responding to someone who could wipe them out in a second and just like Esther when she approached the king in great humility, begging for prayer for three days before she entered the throne room before Ahasuerus, she came humbly in the faith of God. These people did the same. They were faith filled and they were they were in the arms of God under his watch care as they approached him as they approached Tatanai in this correspondence. And what happened? The blessing is great. And you just heard the story as it was read. That's why I had the whole thing read is so you could see the big picture of the correspondence. You have Tatanai who's, who's he's in the details, chapter five, verse eight, he's examining things. He's looking around. He's asking for who the leaders are. What What's the, the decree that got this going? You know, why are you guys doing this? And they humbly responded to him so that that went well. That interaction between the people of God and Tatanai went well. And then the interaction from Tatanai in a letter to Darius all the way up to the proverbial White House, that letter went really well because Tatanai was representing humble, non-threatening people. And so he, in a non-threatening way, went up all the way up to the, the highest leader of the world at the time. And that humility went all the way up the chain and it melted the heart of the king. And so then the king responded in a humble way, beginning in chapter 6, saying, look, we've got to find the record on these people. And not only are we going to affirm and not stand in the way of this building project, we're going to fund it. How powerful, how powerful is the witness of humble submission? It's powerful enough to transform and, and rock the world The worlds of of world leaders. The mindsets of world leaders. You want to melt somebody's hard heart? You do it through humility. You do it through gentleness. Is that different than the way the world thinks and looks and acts? I think so. Humility is a, it's basically a fruit of the spirit. To be humble, to be gentle, to be soft, to be meek. It's a spiritual reality that these people wielded well and it melted the heart of the king. All right, well, here's a way I can sort of wrap my arms. We're just gonna go up through the end of chapter five in the correspondence this morning. And a way for us to wrap our arms around this is for me to ask a question this morning. And here's the question. What if these Jewish believers had been offensive, defiant, Or unsubmissive to governing authorities. What if they had said, Look, we're going to not respond in faith, but we're going to respond in fear, and we're going to respond in anger, we're going to be defiant, or we're going to try to slip through the cracks? You know what would happen? The trust would have broken down, the scrutiny would have raised, the pressure would have come down in, in massive scrutiny, and a wall would have shot up in the project, and the project would have stopped. God's plan would have been halting at this point. But instead, humility opened the door for the work to go on. Let me show you this. Let me show you their humility. Look at verse 6. First of all, this is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, um, had It's a copy. In other words, anytime the author can give firsthand correspondence, he wants to do that because he wants, he wants this to be ironclad in terms of the witness of humility that we find in this text. These people that, that were being written about by Tatanai, these people that were being talked to by the governor, by the way, again, they're second and third generation believers in this process their dads and granddads had been taken in exile for 50 years and so these are some of the kids and some of the grandkids that have come back 20 years later and they're in this building project and they're actually they're actually honoring their parents but they're also watch this they're entering into God's plan as if they were alive during all of it. And why do I say that? Well, when, you know, when Tatanai in verse nine, he says, who gave you the decree? You know, where'd you get the permission to do this? What are the names of the people? Look how they responded to Tatanai in verse 11. It says, and this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven. Do you see the God-centeredness here? The, The servants of the God of heaven and earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago. They're entering into this big plan. They're not saying, look, we're not responsible for this. We don't want the scrutiny. We're out. No, they're saying, look, we're all in and we're part of this. It says, you know, which was the great king of Israel built and finished. But look at this. This is the key part. Look at verse 12. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. I just want to show you something. These children of the first generation, we're humble enough to say, listen, we're, we're sharing in the history of what happened. The reason we're in a building project right now is because God got angry with our parents. It's kind of like accepting Adam's sin and saying, look, Adam sinned on our behalf. And if we were there, and if we were in that situation, we would have done the same thing. And so we're just as culpable and responsible and born in sin, just like Adam plunged the race into sin. We are part of that. And that's what these people were doing here. They're saying, listen, this is not an overthrow on you. We're not trying to build a fortress or build ourselves up in some kingdom takeover. We're talking on levels of faith and we're accepting responsibility along with our parents that our parents angered God and that's why we were in exile. And now we're back to make a recovery. This is a redemption moment and a second chance in our life to give glory to God. That's what happened. And I'm telling you, that kind of humility and that kind of gentleness, it quiets the hearts of people who are in leadership. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15, verse 1. And they were manifestly gentle and humble and soft and they had won the king's heart in this way it's opposite of the correspondence we read about in chapter four this is sort of a later correspondence it's out of chronology it's part of the table of contents in the book that the author sort of opens up early but that's commander Rahum and Artaxerxes and they they puff each other up in pride and Artaxerxes says okay man these guys must be against us I'm gonna shut it down but in this chapter chapter five you have soft-hearted believers that are saying listen the issue isn't geography. It's not really, you know, sort of building project. The issue is our fathers, they angered God, who's the great God, the one true God. And this is a redemption moment to rebuild God's temple and his glory in this place. And we see it played out in verses 13 uh, through 15, where the author or where, where the people begin to talk about how Cyrus, he decreed this a long time ago, and he had, he had, Regathered the temple vessels of gold and silver that had been taken from the first temple and he had given them back to these exiles to take them home and rebuild a temple and worship God again in that way. And so there's a case being made for continuity of worship. Look, we just want to be worshipers like Solomon's day and, and then the day that our fathers used to worship God before they angered God. We want to reconstitute worship here again. Which should be our heart always as a church to say, listen, we want to worship God in a purer way, in a greater way, in a God glorifying way, a God centeredness as we build this church. We want to worship God for His glory. We want to take eyes off of man and put eyes on to God. That was these people's hearts. So they're making these connections. One last note of humility look at verse 17. I love this. Look at the ending here of, again, this is Tatanai's letter to Darius, but it was Tatanai who interviewed these soft-hearted believers and wrote it in this way. And he's quoting them. And it says in verse 17, Therefore, if it seems good to the king, this is, this is the people of God speaking through Tatanai to the king. And he says, they, they said, therefore, if it seems good to the king, do you see the humility there? Let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us, look at this, his pleasure in the matter. Is that humble? Is that the way that we should respond to people? You know, it's, we live in a day and age where When something happens, we we sort of want to make sure we get all of ours out of what happens, right? Somebody slips, something happens, our car, car gets wrecked, our car gets bumped into, and we're going, look, I need to make sure I don't get ripped off. I need to make sure that I get legal help here, right, so that I don't lose anything. That's that's the world's attitude. And don't tell me I'm not speaking the truth here. You know how people's ire gets up real quickly when something of theirs is threatened, when their project is threatened or your thing is going to be taken. Nothing graduates from playground theology. Right. You stole my ball and we're fighting or I'm going home. And that's how the world operates but that is not how believers operate or should operate you come with a humble tack towards God's governing authorities even pagan ones and sometimes you see God's blessing but I want to flip this on its head for a second what if the king had said no what if they had to suffer through their obedience. Remember, I asked the question, when is it time to obey God rather than man? There are times when, when man's law violates the Bible's law, and there's times in wisdom where you have to obey God's law sort of over man's law, even if it means suffering, even if it means being put in jail like Paul was for preaching the gospel. There is a time and a place in the believer's life to obey God rather than man. Let me give you the premier example of a person who came here to earth 2,000 years ago who obeyed his father and suffered through that obedience. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. What if Jesus Christ, I want to ask it this way, what if Jesus Christ had been unsubmissive to his governing authority? Sort of, we're in Palm Sunday, and we're going to look towards the cross and the resurrection, so we're going to get into a gospel mode at this point, shifting gears. What if Jesus had been unsubmissive to his governing authority? Well, first of all, that begs another question. Could Jesus have sinned at all or rebelled against God's will? Well, let me just sort of open that and shut it real quickly. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. He's holy. He's perfect. He's perfect. He said, be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. That holiness and that oneness with the Father means that Jesus, as God, very God, could never have sinned. He could not sin because it's contrary to his nature. If Jesus could sin or ever did sin, it would un-God God. God. It would un-God the Godhead and the Trinity. So, Jesus could not have sinned and did not sin. That is the theology of the impeccability of Jesus Christ. At the same time, let me also teach to you something else. Jesus Christ is and was fully human. When he came in the flesh, when he was enfleshed as the son of God and son of man here on earth, he was and is fully man. He enters into our weaknesses and suffered here on earth as a a human being. And also, Jesus Christ, being fully human, made fully volitional decisions according to his will. And that's seen, and we're going to look here in a minute, in Matthew 26, where Jesus, three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, prayed that the cup of wrath or the cross could be lifted from him. You remember that? He prayed that prayer three times while dropping great drops of blood, sweating great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know what that shows to us? It, it, it proves that Jesus Christ in that moment was making a volitional decision to go to the cross. And he did that on your behalf and my behalf. But what would have happened if, if Jesus could have decided and rebelled in that moment and said, Father, I know you want me to go to the cross. I know you want me to bear the sins of the world. I know that you want me to suffer in the place for sinful humanity, but I'm not going to do it. What would have happened? Well, it undoes God's plan, right? His perfect plan. It undoes the redemption story. It undoes all of Old Testament prophecy that pointed to that moment. It undoes all of the law that, that symbolizes Jesus' coming as the once-for-all sacrifice. It, it does something else. It, it undoes our salvation if Jesus chooses not to be submissive. It, it means we're lost in our sins if Jesus chose not to die on the cross on our behalf. And then it undoes Jesus Christ himself as fully God and fully man. So really the Bible, it doesn't really ask the question, as I read the Bible, it doesn't really ask the question whether Jesus could have sinned or rebelled. It never asks that question. The point that the Bible makes is that he volitionally, willingly chose to obey and submit to the Father. That's the point that the Bible makes. The Bible isn't asking the question if Jesus could have sinned or rebelled. The Bible answers all of this without asking the question by saying he did obey and follow God the Father and his will all the way to Golgotha on our behalf. He was submissive. And you know what? Jesus Christ is the perfect example of submission. And every time that you were submissive, you know, a wife to a husband either a believer or an unbeliever, a child when he or she is submissive to parents, when there's mutual submission in the home where you have a husband you know, loving in a humble deferential way to the wife or a wife humbly being deferential to the husband. In an office place when you have a, a, you know, a boss that's unbearable and difficult to serve under, when you have submission in the office, you know what happens? You bring the aroma of Christ into the room. It is heart-melting, powerful witness of Christ that comes into the room when you are humble and you are submissive. I want to just take a, a closer look real quickly at the submission of Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, Jesus is praying in Gethsemane, verse 38, he says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. He's calling the disciples to watch with him. And he, he says, My father, in verse 39, if it is possible, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he repeats that three times. Verse 42, My father, if, it, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done and then turn over to verse 47 it shows that in the garden of gethsemane you have judas who came with as the betrayer with others with the roman guard he greets jesus by kissing him on the cheek and then in 51 you have peter who takes his sword out it says behold one of those who were with jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear, verse 52. And Jesus said, put your sword back into this place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now listen to these words in verse 53. He says this to Peter, do you not think that I can not appeal to my father who, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. A legion was 4,000 to 6,000. And so 12 of those let me see if I can get the math right. I'm on, on the spot again. Is that seventy-two thousand? Sir, a lot of angels, seventy-two thousand angels that could appear in an instant instant to wipe out the Roman guard. This is submission. First Timothy six thirteen is where Paul said Jesus made the good confession before Pontius Pilate, and he did so. Turn over one more place, John eighteen, just to give you a window into the submission of Christ. John 18 actually turn over to John 19 let's just skip ahead verses 10 and 11 he's speaking to Pontius Pilate they had flogged Jesus Christ he had been talking this through with Pontius Pilate and then Pilate said in verse 10 you will not speak to me do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you listen to Jesus' words This is the attitude that we have to have in Christ's likeness. This is what gets us there where we can be humble to people who are unfair to us. Look at the humility of Christ. Jesus answered and said, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Who's in authority over our lives? Whose watch care do we ultimately surrender to? God's. God's watch care. God is the one that's watching over your life. And I'd ask you now to bow your heads as we um, close with a few points of application. Just want these points to sort of sit and simmer in your hearts. We all need this. This is what I needed this week to to humble myself over and over again, to say, Lord, I want to be like Jesus Christ. I want to be like him no matter what comes into my life. I need to have a submissive attitude. Number one, a submissive attitude stands out as diametrically opposed or opposite of what our culture generates and sees. If you want to stand out in the world as a witness, you have to be submissive. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, you can look these verses up later. It talks about how Submission in the home as a, a, a spouse to a husband or a servant to an unruly master submits. He submits or she submits by being like Christ who 1 Peter two twenty one kept entrusting himself to his heavenly father as he was heaving and dying on the cross. Number two, a submissive attitude is contrary to the inclinations born out of a person's sin nature. Philippians 2 says that we're not just to look out for our own personal interests, but for the interest of others. The only reason that you would look out for the interest of others is because Christ has transformed your heart. Number three, the deepest, at the deepest level of authenticity, a submissive attitude is generated from and sustained by the Holy Spirit. You know, for some of you, you might not understand anything of what I'm talking about. Maybe you've had to fight and claw through your life and sort of, you know, ride herd over an unfair system your whole life. And this makes no sense whatsoever to be soft and vulnerable and gentle before leaders. But this is the calling of the Christian life. And this is what the Holy Spirit does in the heart of a person when it's transformed. Number four, a submissive attitude in both spouses makes marriage attractive, Ephesians 5.21 says that we are called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The only reason why you would submit to a spouse in the home, even as believers, let alone being in a, a, a home that's split with a believer and an unbeliever, the only reason why you would do that is because you love Jesus more than your spouse. If you're struggling with your household or your spouse, the key is to fix your eyes on christ and that's the enduring witness in the home by seeing a leader that's higher than the husband or the wife jesus is the lord of all the homes because he made marriage number five a submissive attitude clothes a person with jesus christ first peter 5 5 says clothe yourself with humility and romans thirteen fourteen says put on the lord jesus christ let's pray father i pray that each of us would obey that command that we would wrap humility around our lives like we're wrapping a cloak around us i pray that we would bow in humility before you no matter what our circumstances are or what we find ourselves in i pray that we would humbly walk before you as the lord of our lives I pray that we would put on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provision for the flesh. I pray for each person in this room that you would work in their hearts and you would emblazon on their lives the scripture, the witness of Christ and the witness of these ancient believers who were humble before governing authorities through faith. And I pray that if there's anyone here that does not yet know you, that you would energize them in faith now.